lost at first, but soon began sketching yourself a map of the world, plotting the contours of your life. And like the first explorers, sooner or later you have to contend with the blank spaces on the map. All the experiences you've never had. The part of you still aching to know what's out there. Eventually these questions take on a weight of their own and begin looming over your everyday life. All the billions of doors you had to close in order to take a single step forward. All the things you haven't done and may never get around to doing. All the risks that may or may not have been real. All the destinations that you didn't buy a ticket to. All the lights you see in the distance that you can only wonder about. All the alternate histories you narrowly avoided. All the fantasies that stay dormant inside your head. Everything you're giving up to be where you are right now. The questions that you wrongly assume are unanswerable. It's strange how little of the universe we actually get to see. Strange how many assumptions we have to make just to get by, stuck in only one body, in only one place at a time. Strange how many excuses we've invented to explain why so much of life belongs in the background. Strange that any of us could ever feel at home in such an alien world. We sketch monsters on the map because we find their presence comforting. They guard the edges of the abyss and force us to look away. So we can live comfortably in the known world, at least for a little while. But if someone were to ask you on your deathbed what it was like to live here on Earth, perhaps the only honest answer would be, I don't know. I passed through it once, but I've never really been there. We sketch monsters on the map because we find their presence comforting. They guard the edges of the abyss and force us to look away so we can live comfortably in the known world, at least for a little while. But if someone were to ask you on your deathbed what it was like to live here on Earth, perhaps the only honest answer would be, I don't know, I passed through it once, but I've never really been there. What do you want? Uh, because if you don't know what you want, you'll never know what you need. What do you want? Having a purpose in life creates a purpose for life. So what do you want? Do you know that you were designed, created to have holy desires, holy wants? What do you want? If you can afford it, you probably haven't found it. What do you want? So a couple years ago, uh, my wife and I went to the movie theater to watch a movie in the theater. And I'm saying theater a lot because like that does not happen when you've got four kids, especially when you've got to pay for a babysitter to go to a movie theater, right? Because some tickets be like 14, 15 bucks. You're already at $30 just to go sit in them super comfy seats, 
and watch a movie theater with nobody else bugging you. But then not only do you got to pay for the movie tickets, but you got to pay for the babysitter. So then you're dropping another 50 on that. Next thing you know, it's like a hundred bucks to go see a movie. Like buck 99 at the red box making me feel really, really good. Okay. So we had got some movie tickets. Uh, thank you, Spectrum Health. That's if you're a nurse at Spectrum Health, that's like, you're, that's all you get. <laughs> you get two movie tickets and like a coupon for half off popcorn or something like that. So uh, we had two movie tickets though. So we splurged for the babysitter. We went and saw a movie. You may remember it. It was called The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. It had Ben Stiller and Kristen Wiig in the movie. Now, it's kind of a modern retelling of James Thurber's 1939 short story of the same name. Now, in the short story, the movie uh, uh, really kind of follows the same idea, uh, but certainly to be a movie, it's going to have to kind of move off of simply what Thurber had written, but it's about this guy named Walter Mitty. Walter is kind of this dolt of a man. He's just kind of sleepwalking through life, okay? He's boring and bland and never does anything out of the ordinary or scary, stuck in his patterns. The only time that he ever actually lives is in his daydreams. Uh, In the short story, it starts off with Walter and his wife uh, on their way to the store. And uh, they're driving along and something sparks his imagination And next thing you know, he's actually in a plane. And in the plane, they're flying this bomber, and he's the captain. And there's a huge storm that's over the ocean. Everybody's yelling, and he's telling them what to do. Do this, and man that, and charge up the engines. And just about the time that he's going to be the hero, his wife snaps him back to reality. Walter! Walter! Where are you? You're driving too fast. And... That's Walter's life. He just kind of keeps sleepwalking through life, only living in his dreams. Now, in the Ben Stiller version, uh, there's certainly some different additions to what's taking place, but all of it is just like the short story where Mitty is surrounded by life and yet not really living. And that pulls the movie towards its conflict. There's a gal, her name is April Mosley. She's a movie critic, and she says this about the movie. She says, Walter Mitty is you and me. He is any man who has ever self-medicated his ego by imagining better outcomes. He is the ubiquitous everyman that believes that his station in life is static, who cannot put down the iPhone or turn off the TV. He is every one of us that has become a passive passenger in our own distracted lives. You ever feel that way? Every one of us that has become a passive passenger in our own distracted lives. Walter Mitty has a decision to make. Is he going to be a victim of his fears or is he actually going to learn to live? Uh, I think this is actually the question God wants to ask us today. Are you going to continue to be a victim of your fears, or are you actually going to learn to live? If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open up to 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you need a Bible, you can go ahead and uh, grab one uh, from one of the ushers that's going to be coming down. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Just raise your hand up high. Uh, They'll make sure to grab one for you. Or you can just 
pull out your phone, follow along on the Bible app. Uh, Paul writes 1 Timothy. He's writing to uh, his protege, Timothy, who is pastoring a church. And uh, Paul is writing Timothy to tell him some really important kind of his, some of the last things that Paul's probably going to tell Timothy. He wants him to know how to pastor this church well, and so he's giving him some instructions, but not just instructions for Timothy, there are also some instructions for the people that were part of Timothy's church. And uh, the reason that the Holy Spirit desired that Paul would write these words is because it wasn't just for that church then, it's for our church now. Uh, Paul has just finished telling Timothy to stay away from uh, people who are just in love with money. Not who have money, but who are in love with with money. And he also tells them to stay away from false teachers who are just trying to use the gospel to try to get rich off of it. And he goes and picks up the story in verse 6. Now we're going, or excuse me, verse 11. We're going to read uh, verses 11 through 19, but we're going to specifically focus on 17, 18, and 19 this morning. Go ahead and read with me. He says, but you, man of God, speaking to Timothy, he's like, flee from all this. Instead, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. So Paul's like, yo, man, if you see folks that are, that are acting that way, Timothy, don't give in to that. Instead, pursue these other things. Go after righteousness and godliness and faith and love and endurance and gentleness. He's, fight the good fight. Look, last week I told you guys, right, that... You didn't save yourself. You don't transform yourself. We're in the series, Moments That Make Us. Last week, we asked the question, is change possible? And we answered with a resounding yes, because it's not up to us as Christians. It's actually a gift that God gives. Just as God gives the gift of salvation, he gives the gift of transformation. In fact, it says, if God is for us, who can be against us, right? Whatever he started, he's going to bring to completion. There's no place we can run from his love. That is the good news of transformation. But we also said we have a responsibility, a role to play within that, right? Just as we play a role and a responsibility in salvation, we have to accept the gift in faith. We also play a role in the realization or the, the need for transformation that God wants to do in our lives. It's not just something that we can just sit back passively and think is going to happen. God says, hey, we're in this together. And so this week, we want to ask the question, well, like, how, do, how do we change then? What does that look like? If we play a role in it, if it's a gift that God gives us and he's doing the work, we still have to step up to the plate, so to speak. Well, Paul's about to tell us here that we are to take hold of the eternal life to which Timothy was called when he made his good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight the good fight of the faith, Timothy. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Probably talking about his baptism, but certainly at least uh, he's referring back to when Timothy made the decision to public, go public with his faith, that he was like all in, right? Like not holding something back, not like, Jesus, you get a little bit of me, Jesus, I'll do the church thing, Jesus, but like, no, you can have all of me. And he's like, yo, remember that, Timothy? Take hold of the eternal life. Now, this is interesting. This is where we're going to nerd out just for a second, okay? Uh, now, it's not because I'm a nerd, because I'm actually not that smart, but I know nerds, okay? And so I learn from them, and then I pass it on to you. The, the tense here for the word in the original language for take hold is the aorist tense. You ever heard of that? 
Me either. Okay, perfect. So uh, it's actually, though, uh, what we would probably say is the perfect tense, which means that it's an ongoing action. When Paul tells Timothy to take hold of the eternal life, right, to which he was called, he's not saying it's a one-time thing, like, oh, you got it, you're good, put it in your back pocket, walk away, everything's cool. No, he's saying take hold, in other words, keep taking hold. Continue to grab hold of this, this eternal life that has been granted to you. So let's keep reading. Verse 13, he says, In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. In other words, remember when Jesus is in front of Pontius Pilate, and, and he says, are, are, are you the king? And he says, you say I am. In other words, yeah, I am. But he says, my kingdom's not of this world. <laughs> if it were, trust me, bro, you couldn't hold back my army. It's in the Greek, that's how it says it, just like that. <laughs> He says, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. And then I love this because uh, Paul's, Paul's about to geek out on God a little bit. All right, You can just get an idea of how much Paul loves God. Keep reading with me. He's like, God, the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings and lord of lords who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Woo! Like, you can just kind of feel it. It seems a little bit strange that all of a sudden he just starts going off about how much he thinks God is just awesome, right? But have you ever been in love with somebody? Like, where you just can't, like, contain it? Like, you can't wait to spend time with them. You can't wait to talk to them. Like, you're thinking about them all the time. Like, you just love, they're the, the greatest thing ever. Like, I, oh, you want to talk about them to your friends? Your friends are like, shut up. I'm so sick of hearing about her. That that's how Paul feels about his relationship with God. It's not just some rational thing that Paul is like, well, I know that God is he's omnipotent and omniscient, and I, and I decide that I'm going to fall. Like, that's there. The rational side's there. But, like, there's this also emotional side where Paul, he just mentions God's name, right? He's talking about Jesus, verse 15, which God will bring about in his own time. He's like, oh, God, <laughs> by the way. That one who's blessed and the only ruler, king of kings, lord of lords, alone is immortal, lives in unapproachable, let him know the city can say, woo, to him be honored. Like, he just goes off. Why? Because he's in love. God's transformed him. And look, I want to I ask you a, like a legit question. Have you ever felt that for God? Like where when, when, when you hear the name of the Father, like just inside, you're just like, ah. Like stuff just starts wanting to spill out of you, praise and adoration, and, 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 and thanksgiving. Look, in West Michigan, especially in West Michigan, it's really possible to grow up with religion and not actually really know Jesus, okay? And if you've never had an emotional response, if all it is is rational stuff that's up here, I just simply think you need to ask God the question, God, do I really know you? Or say, God, I want to know you that way. Now, I'm not saying you got to be, like, crazy, like, I'm not like you, T. I'm not, like, weird and going to, like, shout and yell. And Okay, that's fine. Like, we all have different personalities. But I promise you, when, when you fell in love with your spouse or uh, uh, hobbies that you have, like, you get excited about it. Oh, did you see the new spinnerbait I got for my bass boat prop 2000? Like, like, you ever been around a fisherman? Like, they can talk for hours about fishing, all right? Look, if you... If you have never had that with God, then I think that there's something that you need to at least ask God about. 
So Paul, he like goes off in this little moment. I don't even, that's like a whole side. Like that was, that was just a freebie today, okay? All right, that wasn't even the sermon. So brings us down to verse 17, which is really where I kind of want to camp on. All right? He says this, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may what? That's right, take hold. Look, he's repeating something that he's already said up above. All right? This is important, and this is the same thing. It's in the perfect tense. Keep taking hold so that you may take hold. First time he says take hold of the eternal life, to which you recall, now he's saying take hold of the life that is truly life. All right? Same idea there. Same idea there. In this way, such a key statement. Such a key statement. And I want to get to that in just a second. Back in verse 17, he says, command those who are rich in this present world. Now, some of y'all are like, ooh, this is good. There's some folks in here that need to hear this, right? Them rich folks, like they need to be paying attention. But here's the reality, all right? For every single one of us that is sitting in this room here in America with more than one pair of shoes, you're in at least the 90th percentile richest people in the world. 90th. You get a 90 on an exam, what do you get? An A. You're like the A folks, right? Now, if you have a car that puts you into like the 97th percentile, somewhere in that ballpark, if you have a home, more than one car, you're like 98th plus percentile, all right? So can we just at least for the next few minutes humor the pastor and assume that what is being spoken of here actually applies to you and to me, that we are all those who are rich in this present world, okay? This is us. He's talking to us. So he's like, look, those of you that are rich in this present world, command them not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, all right? Uh, So in other words, no matter what you got, you can't be like arrogant, like proud, like, hey, yo, yo, check me out. Like, I like, I'm better than somebody else because of what I got, all right? First and foremost, because why? Well, God is the one who gives it to us, all right? Now, not because of how awesome you are, how smart you are. Whatever you have, gifts, skills, abilities, uh, uh, relational resources, financial resources, uh, God's given all of that to you. Now, sometimes, though, we don't like to talk about, like, how rich we are as Americans, Part of it is because we're like, well, I'm not as rich as so-and-so. But compared to the rest of the world, we're all rich, all right? So we don't like talking about it, though, because we kind of get a little ashamed. Like, uh, yo, like, I don't want, like, what are the three things you never talk about at a dinner party? Politics, religion, and money, right? You never walk up to somebody and say, hey, my name's Torin. What do you do for a living? Oh, that's cool. How much do you make? (laughs) Anybody ever ask you? No, no. (laughs) Right? Command those who are rich in this present world not to be here and put their hope in wealth. The reason he says don't put your hope in wealth is because it's so uncertain. I I was trying to sell a house in 2007. A house that two years earlier probably would have been worth like 40K more. Now I was just trying to get out of it what I had put in. 
I knew a lot of people that had bought homes because the housing market in 04, 05, and 06 was booming, just like it is now. And when the economy took a hit, they lost everything because they spent 200K on a house that was now worth 120. And they still owed 180. And all of a sudden, they're like, what's going on? We're, what, look, wealth is uncertain. We can all acknowledge that. You never know what's going to happen. So we can't be proud because of what we have, and we certainly can't put our hope in it because we don't know what's gonna, whether or not it's going to last. He says, but to put their hope in God, right, who richly, I love that. Check, don't lose that he says that right there. Who richly, right, God's not stingy. Who richly provides us with everything for what? Come on, say it. Come on, say it like you mean it. Yeah, see, we don't like talking about that, right? Because like if you got stuff, you think, oh man, I shouldn't really, like I feel a little embarrassed that I got stuff. Look, whatever you have, God's given it to you for your enjoyment, right? You, you got a lake house up north, okay? You better enjoy the heck out of that thing. Like, that's like, like if you got a Ferrari, Okay, you should let your pastor enjoy that sometimes. Like, <laughs> whatever you have, okay, God has given it to you for your enjoyment. It says that he richly provides for us for our enjoyment. You don't have to be ashamed of it, but you knew there was a but coming, didn't you? It's not just so that we can enjoy it. It's not only so that we can just lap up all the wonderful things that this world has to offer, there's actually a reason that God has given you what you have. Keep reading. He says, command them to do good. Look, the first thing that he says is not command them to give money. He says, command them to do good. See, sometimes when we have lots of money, we think, you know what? The only way that I'm going to contribute is I'll just give some money. No, no, no. It's not just about like giving out of your excess. It's also about like you got to do stuff too. You got to get in and get your hands dirty. I don't care how much money you got, how little bit of money you got. He says, command them to do good. Keep reading. To be rich in good deeds. Again, at this point, he's not even talking about the money, right? To do good, to be rich in good deeds. And then he says, and to be generous and willing to share. Whatever you have, God has given it to you. And it's for your enjoyment. You should enjoy whatever he's given you, but it's not just for your enjoyment. It's also so that you can be generous and willing to share. In this way. This is the key phrase in this whole passage. In this way. If you do that, in other words, if you do the do's and don't the don'ts, then this will happen. Uh, let me tell you a story. When I was in uh, college, actually when I was in high school, I always wanted to play uh, a sport in college. I was like, oh, that would be so cool. Like if I was good enough to actually play a sport in college. So uh, I, I uh, first semester went to a community college. Uh, soccer was probably my best sport. And so I thought if I was going to have any chance of playing uh, a sport in college, it was going to be soccer. Well, uh, the community college I went to, they didn't have a soccer team. And so uh, I didn't play that first freshman year because soccer is a fall sport. And I was at the community college. Uh, halfway through my freshman year, I transferred to a school down in Ohio, Cedarville. And uh, sophomore year, I went back. Now, you couldn't try out for the varsity team. Uh, you had to be invited to, to, to play varsity. So uh, they did have a JV team, so I tried out for the JV team. 
I made the JV team, and I had a really good year uh, playing JV. And so the varsity coach uh, came down to two of us or maybe three of us and said, hey, uh, I'd, I'd like to invite you to play varsity next year, okay? So um, we got together with the whole varsity team uh, before the end of uh, the, kind of that spring semester, and coach said, uh, hey, you guys know the drill. We get back two weeks before the first game, so we don't have time to get in shape. You got to keep yourselves. You got to be in shape when you get here. And he said, I'll know if you're in shape because, as you know, we'll all do the 2 and 12 uh, as soon as we get here. So two miles in 12 minutes. All right? So uh, you might look at me and think, man, that dude is built for, like, long-distance speed, right? <laughs> look, man, I hate running, all right? And, and it's a theological conviction, actually. Like, I think God only created running for when something's chasing you. All right, there is a reason that it says the wicked run in Proverbs, okay, like uh, I believe with all my heart. So uh, I said, uh, when I got home, I had always kind of gotten by on natural talent when I was in high school. I didn't have to work really, really hard. College was a different beast, but I didn't really know that yet. And so that summer, guess how many times uh, I went running? Two, a couple of you saying zero, like, uh, really? Give me some credit, come on. Twice. I went running twice. And I showed up, and uh, first day, coach got us up early, took us out to the track. He's like, all right, 2 and 12, go. First lap around the track, right, four laps is a mile. Uh, first lap, I'm doing good. I'm fine. I'm hanging with the lead pack. Second lap, they're starting to get a little distance on me. Third lap, I'm definitely behind. Fourth lap, I'm at three minutes flat for the first mile. Or excuse me, six minutes flat for the first mile. You guys be like, he's an Olympic athlete. He was <laughs> sorry. Six minutes uh, for the first mile. I literally have to run the second mile as fast or faster than I ran the first mile. It didn't happen. Uh, Twelve minutes and twenty-five seconds was the closest that I came, and coach knew that I was not ready. I was only one of two guys that didn't uh, that didn't make it. The other guy didn't even wind up finishing the season. Coach knew that I wasn't ready, and I sat the bench pretty much the entire year. Uh, I probably uh, was not good enough to be a starter, uh, but I was good enough to contribute. Uh, I could have contributed to the team, but uh, because I really wasn't prepared and, and, and Coach knew it, I, I didn't really have a chance to do that. And when it came time for uh, playoffs and we had to shrink the team uh, for traveling reasons, uh, I was not one of the guys that was invited. And my senior year, I decided uh, I wasn't even going to play. And I don't have a whole lot of regrets in my life, to be honest. But I look back on that as one of those regrets, where I wish somebody would have come to that 19-year-old punk and said, dude, you know you hate running. You know you're not that good at running, okay? So you need to get up every morning, and you need to go out and put in the miles. Like if somebody would have come to me and said, hey, I'll, let's run together. Let's do this, right? Start off with two, then go to three, then go to five, then be up to seven so that when you've got to do two and 12, you can actually do it and you'll be able to contribute. I wish somebody would have told me. I think that my job as your pastor is to try to be that guy. You see, when it says in this way, that's really the coach saying, look, if you do the do's and don't the don'ts, then something's going to happen. Something really good. In fact, let's find out what that something is. Continue reading with me in 
uh, verse 19. He says, in this way, right? These are people who are doing good, being rich in good deeds, and generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You see, when we do the things that God calls us to do, right? When we stay away from the things that we're not supposed to do, like putting our faith in our money, right? Or getting arrogant because of what we got. When we're actually good, uh, uh, when we're doing good deeds, when we're rich in good deeds, when we're generous and willing to share, what that is actually doing is actually taking hold of the life that is truly life. What's, What's Paul talking about? What Paul's talking about is the fact that when we give things up here, okay, good deeds, we're generous with what God's given us, willing to share it with others. We lose it here, we gain it here. We lose it in this life, we gain it in the life to come. Do you see what he says about uh, laying up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation? Firm foundation for the coming age. Lose it here, gain it here. Here's what's insane though. This is the good part. Hang with me, this is so good. You lose it here, you gain it here, but when you gain it here, you actually drag it into the present. You lose it here, you gain it here, and by gaining it here, you actually drag that into the present. You want to know how to start living in heaven now? Do what God's word says. You'll actually begin to experience the life of the kingdom, the life that God desires for you. That's life and life to the full. That's taking hold of the eternal life. You see how he talks about it back in verse 12, and then he talks about it again in, uh, in verse 19. Uh, there's a really smart dude, his name's Philip Towner. And, and uh, I want to share just a little quote that he talks about. It, it's a little thick and a little deep, but it helps us understand, I think, all right? He says, the distinction continues, the reversal of values, by the paradoxical assertion that sharing wealth now, all right, is in reality an acquisition of heavenly wealth. Eternal life is what Paul is describing, but in the way that he expresses it, the life that is truly life, And by repeating the verb to take hold of verse 12, he says the real possibility of beginning the experience of eternal life in the present age is confirmed. Friends, when we give up stuff here, using our wealth to be generous, generous and rich in good deeds as God commands, we actually lay up treasure in heaven, but by doing so, we actually bring heaven to earth now. That, friends, is what it's about. And so I said, look, I, I want to give us a very practical way that we can begin to live out this concept of what does it look like, what's our role, what's the, what are we supposed to do to change, all right? The truth is every Christian is intended to live a beautiful life, right? To tell a beautiful story by the way that they live, right? Every penny we spend is another word in our story. Every good deed, every generous gift is a chapter in our story, right? And our stories matter. Why? Because our stories help us experience the future. Not only that, but they help others see the future. When you're living it out, you're going to experience it, and those around you get to say, whoa, there's something different there. They're generous and and kind, and and, and they're giving away stuff that that they they have, and yet they're still even happier than me. (laughs) They got more joy than me. Like, this is why it matters. So, uh, the same thing that makes a great story also makes a great life. And there are very specific things that go into every great story. 
I'm going to steal some stuff from a guy named Donald Miller, uh, who has uh, a book that he wrote called Storyline. And uh, he is an author, and he loves uh, the, I guess, I don't know what you would say, the, the philosophy of storytelling, the psychology of storytelling, how it works. So uh, every great story has three things in it. So every book you've ever read that's great, every movie you've ever seen, all right, it has a character that wants something and overcomes conflict to get it, all right? A character wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. So in your life, guess what? You're the character, okay? <laughs> You're the character in your life. I started by asking, what do you want? What do you want? Um, I've been working on a, uh, a movie plot um, that I think uh, is really good, and I'd like to share it with you. Um, it's a single mom, and uh, she's got two kids, a uh, 14-year-old son, a 12-year-old daughter, and uh, she's in New York City for a conference. Her kids are back at home, and uh, there's a break in the conference, and she decides she's going to go window shopping on Fifth Avenue. And the movie opens up with, you just see like from like her ankles, her heels as she's like walking down the street on Fifth Avenue and all of a sudden she stops and turns, the camera pans up and it's this super cute little high-end boutique. And she walks in and every piece of clothing, uh, everything looks like it was just designed exactly for her. Everything she tries on fits her perfectly. She looks great in every single piece, but every single piece is crazy money. We're talking tens of thousands of dollars, and she decides to herself, I have to have this. So she goes home, and she tells the neighbor kid who had been mowing the lawn that she doesn't need him to do it anymore because she needs to save up money. When they go out to eat, she stops tipping around town because she needs to save up whatever she can. In fact, her son and daughter, she takes her daughter out of piano lessons because it costs too much, and her son uh, has to stop all of his extracurriculars as well. And uh, She decides that they need to sell their house because they don't actually need four bedrooms. Uh, it's just the three of them, and so she buys a much smaller house uh, where there's actually only two bedrooms. Uh, she makes her son and daughter actually share a room, and she gets a room, but she does take some of the money, and she puts an addition on the new house. The addition, though, is just a huge walk-in closet, and it's gorgeous, and when you open the doors, the lights come on without even having to do anything, and uh, uh, she's saving and saving, and at the end of the movie, the climax scene is she walks into the store, throws open the doors, and says, I'll take it all. You're not cheering. Like, this, that, like that's the, like, why aren't you cheering? <laughs> How come, right? Because that had, a, that had a character who wanted something and overcame conflict to get it. Like, all the makings of a great story, what every great story has. Why aren't you clapping? Because what she wanted was stupid, right? That's why you're not, that's why you're not, you're not going to pay 10 bucks to go see that stupid story, right? Because she wants something that's not worth wanting. What do you want? Uh, Donald Miller says that when you know what you want, it helps you write the rest of the story. What do you want? Do you want to save orphans? 
from being exploited or abused? Do you want to help widows and single moms know that they matter and that they're not alone? Do you want to help men and women who are coming out of prison to actually have a second chance? Do you want to use the skills and talents that you have to pass on to someone else so that they can help work their way out of poverty? Do you want to help high school kids learn how to listen to the voice of God? What do you want? You see, when you know what you want, then you can envision the climactic scene. Uh, A few years ago, Donald Miller had decided that uh, he wanted to lose a little bit of weight. And he said he knew if he just made a New Year's resolution, it wouldn't do it, help him at all. He also said, even if I make goals for this year, it's not going to help me. He's like, I need to write a story for myself. And so he decided uh, that he was going to climb Mount Hood, something he always thought would be pretty cool. And he said, for me to do that, I started to imagine the climactic scene. It was going to be me and a buddy. We would have been climbing for a few days at this point. And then uh, on the third day, we would actually summit just before dawn. We would make our way up through the cloud cover where the clouds are at our feet, the top of the mountain. And when the sun comes up, we would take that amazing selfie like, look what we did. You see, he says, if you want to write a great story, first you have to know what you want. But then you actually have to envision the climactic scene. Do you know what you want? What would it look like when you get it? Uh, Maybe you want to save a kid's life by adopting them. And so you can envision you're jet lagged and exhausted and you're running on adrenaline and you're walking down the sidewalk to that big concrete Soviet-era building, and you've got the manila envelope in your hand, and it's kind of shaking, and it's a little wet, and just kind of dreary out, and, and, and you throw open those steel doors, and you walk down the hallway, and you turn right, and, and, and there she is, the woman that you've been in contact with, and she's beaming and says how excited she is to see you, And she asks you for the paperwork to make sure everything is right. And she then takes you, hands trembling, and walks you down that hallway to the room where that little girl is sitting. And you know she can't even understand what you're saying at this point. But you pick her up anyway and you hold her close in your arms and you whisper in her ear, you're mine, you're safe now. What's your climactic scene going to look like? What will it look like when you get that holy desire that God has placed in your life? You see, you have to ask, what do I want, and then what will that scene look like? Uh, Maybe you want to save a neighbor's life. And so you're going to start loving them with an insane ferocity that they could never see coming. You're going to become so annoying with the amount of cookies that you bring them, with the amount of times that you mow their lawn, with the little gifts that you give them, with how much you wave and say hi, with the invites that you offer to come in to your house and get to know your family, and yet you can envision the climactic scene where a year from now, they're right over there in the baptismal, and you're standing next to them, And she's crying, and you're crying, and she starts telling the story about how uh, she didn't 
trust the church or Christians, but this crazy neighbor just wouldn't leave her alone and started sharing about her own story and she realized how desperately she wanted that in her own life and how she finally, after a long struggle, gave her life to Jesus and uh, so much has begun to change and she's experienced joy that she's never experienced before and, and, and you're crying and she's crying and baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. She comes up out of the water and she's doing like this and you're like, oh, 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 and it's just like, Amazing, right? What's the climactic scene? Lindahl Miller says, if you want to write a great life, not only do you have to know what you want, you have to envision the climactic scene, and then you have to create an inciting incident. This is the good one. You see, the best stories always save people's lives. Right? I mean, any great story you've ever read, it's about helping somebody out that is in need uh, Donald Miller said if he was going to actually climb Mount Hood, uh, he's like, uh, I knew that I was going to have, this was going to be a big deal because I'd have to get up early, I'd have to go to the gym, I'd have to get on that Stairmaster and like everybody would be making fun of me because a dude on a Stairmaster just looks weird anyway, but he's like, I knew I'd have to. And so he's like, I'm going to do this thing, but I know for me to actually get past all that, I'm going to have to create an inciting incident. So Donald Miller, uh, he's got like 100,000 plus followers on Twitter. That's what he did is he tweeted out, I'm climbing Mount Hood this next uh, uh, summer uh, with my buddy, uh, cheer me on. And then he went and bought a plane ticket for that time, called up his friend and said, you need to buy a plane ticket too so that you're going to come with me and do this. And now Donald Miller had created an inciting incident. He couldn't go back anymore, right? When you bought a plane ticket and you told your friend that he needed to buy a plane ticket and you told all these people what you were going to do, he just created an, created an inciting incident. The story couldn't stall anymore. It had to move forward. And that's true for us. Look, the bigger the thing God is calling you to, the more conflict you're going to experience to actually do it. The bigger the conflict, the bigger the inciting incident had better be. When my wife decided that she was going to run a marathon... She didn't just say anything to me because she'd been telling me she was going to do that for years. I'm like, okay, honey, cool. Like, you should do that. I'm not running with you, but, you know, go for it. She told me for years she never did it until one year she signed up and paid the money. Uh, my wife is Filipino. She definitely ain't Dutch, but she acts Dutch, you know, like, she put down 50 bucks, like, I promise you, like, hell or high water, she's running a marathon. Not only that, though, she went and told all of her friends, hey, I'm running a marathon, keep me accountable. That was her inciting incident, right? The bigger the thing God's calling you to, the greater the conflict, the greater the conflict, the bigger your inciting incident had better be. So, maybe you decide that you're going to be a light at your work. And so what you're going to do on Tuesday you're going to send out an email in the morning, and you're going to send it to all your coworkers, and you're going to tell them, hey, uh, I've got donuts at my desk. Uh, meet me at 10 o'clock. And every single one of your coworkers is going to show up because they want donuts, okay? And then while they're eating donuts, you're going to say to them, hey, uh, I haven't always been super public about my faith and how Jesus has transformed my life, uh, but I want you guys to know that uh, I'm a follower of Christ, and, and he's really doing something. And if, I ever, if you'd ever like me to share with you what God's done in my life, I would love to be able to do that. Some of you are getting nervous just thinking about that happening, right? That would be an inciting incident. You can't go back anymore, right? You can't forward on that joke you probably wanted to forward on, right? It's like, oh, I told them I was a follower. You can't get super upset when somebody uh, uh, makes a mistake, 
You're going to have to be more patient, more thoughtful, more loving. All the things God wants you to be, right? Because that's an inciting incident. Uh, maybe for you, you're like, hey, I know God's calling me to greater financial generosity. And so for you, uh, maybe you've been giving God a tip instead of a tithe. And uh, now uh, you're going to tell your friends, uh, hey, I know God wants me to be given my first 10%. And I'm not right now. So uh, over the next three months, I'm going to do 3% and keep adding that 3% until I'm there. And I'm going to really need you to help me be accountable. You tell all your friends that, you can't back out. What's your inciting incident going to be? God uh, reminds us, friends. We're not supposed to put our hope in treasure, right? Instead, we're supposed to put our hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And also so that we can be rich in good deeds, generous and willing to share. When we do the do's and don't the don'ts, we actually take hold of the life that is truly life. We begin to experience heaven, not just in the future, but right now. That's what God desires for us. So I simply am going to ask us to take the next minute, and I want you to just sit with God and ask these three questions. What do you want? What holy desire do you have? What will it look like when you get it? And what do you need to do now to start the story? Sit with God and just ask him those questions. We no longer sketch monsters on the map, we erase them because we find their presence unintimidating. It is not monsters, but God who guards the edges of the abyss, and he gently calls us out from the comfort of the known world, at least for a little while. So if someone were to ask you on your deathbed what it was like to live here on earth, perhaps your honest answer could be, good, but not safe. And it continues on in so many others. How are you taking hold of the life that is truly life? Father God, let us be people who are not simply good at talking. Let us be people who are good at listening and doing. And so God, if there's something that you said to us today, God, let us continue to seek your heart for this. That we might not simply be hearers of the word, but also doers. Not for our glory, not so that we look cool, but God, so that you're glorified, so that people look at our lives and say, oh man, there's something different there. God, we want to live great stories for you. We believe that's your desire for us because when we do, we actually experience heaven on earth. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.